this episode of 92i Talks, we go into our archives for a special reading of Howard Zinn's A Young People's History of the United States, highlighting the words of America's youngest rebels, dissenters, and visionaries. In addition to Zinn, speakers include Tim Robbins, Amber Tamblin, Stacey Ann Chin, and more. The event was recorded on May 13, 2009, in front of a live audience at New York's 92nd Street Y. Let's not get excited. Uh, I have to thank the 92nd Street Y. Uh, I shouldn't say I have to thank them. I don't have to thank them. I choose to thank them. Uh, and as you just heard, uh, six years ago, that's the last time we've done this at the 92nd Street Y, six years ago we had our first such event uh, it was February 23rd, uh, 2003. It was just before the uh, war began in Iraq. And just after, and some of you may remember this, on February 15th, a worldwide demonstration against the war on one day, simultaneously, about 10 to 15 million people around the globe protesting against the war. Oh, so that was the context in which uh, we had our reading here at the 92nd Street Y. And I mention that because you know, we, we want the, the things that we do uh, to have some connection with what is happening in the world outside. Uh, it's not just history, it's not just past, it's very present. And uh, by the way, I, I want to thank a couple of the people who, who were responsible uh, for organizing this today, uh, Ruth Wiener of Seven Stories Press and, and Brenda Coughlin, uh, who's been doing a lot of work for this, uh, as well as Anthony Arnold. Yeah, and uh, uh, you, know, you know what happened at that first time when Harper Collins, my uh, publisher, uh, by then, owned by Rupert Murdoch. Uh, I was very happy about that. And he was happy to have me. Uh, and and, and uh, HarperCollins, fortunately, in big organizations, the person at the very top very often doesn't know what's happening. I don't think Rupert and Murdoch knew that they were celebrating a millionth copy sold of a people's history, which was just as well because he would have stormed the Y with, you know, machine guns and artillery and the, his usual style. Uh, but uh, when, when the, the idea first came out from HarperCollins, oh, let's celebrate this occasion of all these copies sold of the people's history, uh, there's a question, well, how shall we celebrate it? And some people suggested, well, uh, let's see, let, let's bring some historians on the stage to discuss history. I said, please, <laughs> not that. And then I got this, what I think was a brilliant idea. I'm a very modest person, uh, but this was a brilliant idea. And I thought, well, let's get actors. Let's get actors to read actual real documents from history. Uh, and, and no, not the, not the kind of things that you have in uh, 
traditional books of documents. You know, when I was going to graduate school, I uh, given a big fat book of documents, uh, documents of American history. And what it consist of, consisted of uh, the speeches of presidents, the uh, you know, laws passed by Congress, decisions of the Supreme Court, you know. N no, this was uh, going to be a, a different set of documents. Well, it's going to be documents based on the idea of a people's history. Can we be the words, uh, the speeches, the memoirs, the songs, the poems, the, the uh, things said by people who are not uh, in power, uh, working people, men and women, uh, black people, Native Americans, prisoners, uh, rebellious, mutinous soldiers, and uh, yeah, we're going to have that kind of document. And at the and we, it was in a, a historic event. We had, uh, we assembled a wonderful cast. We had James Earl Jones reading Frederick Douglass. We had Kurt Vonnegut reading Eugene Debs. Yeah. Uh, we had Marissa Tomei reading the words of a New England mill girl. Some of these things you will hear tonight read by other and also talented actors. No. We had Alice Walker reading uh, Fannie Lou Hamer, the Mississippi sharecropper. It was, it was a, quite a night. Uh, the Y remembers it. <laughs> and uh, I do. And uh, so uh, it was sometime after that, or roughly around that time, that Anthony Arnove and I decided, uh, and along with Dan Simon of Seven Stories Press, decided to put together a book which was just a collection of documents, not like my People's History, which has snippets of quotations, you know, dotting the book here and there, but to just use the full documents and put them all in one volume, which we called Voices of a People's History. And so we have this volume with 200 documents in it. And we've drawn from that for these events which have taken place around the country, events like tonight where we've had different casts of, of actors and artists reading some of these documents. And very often, uh, we would draw upon local people to read the documents. And I remember once in Western Massachusetts when we had a reading, we had a, a woman who had been jailed 13 times for civil disobedience reading a speech she gave to the judge uh, on one of her uh, jailings. <laughs> so, uh, we, so we, we produced that book and we've had these events all around the country and now we have this new book put out by Seven Stories Press, uh, Young People's History uh, of the United States. And, I, and there's sort of two aspects to this idea of, of young people's history. Uh, well, one is that, uh, well, we wanted, we wanted to take my people's history, which mostly used in colleges and, and, and in high schools too, but, but we had been approached by many teachers and parents asking if there was a people's history for younger people, for middle school people, for 10, 12-year-old people. And so uh, Rebecca Steffoff undertook the job of adapting my book uh, for young people. And, and you will see if you uh, buy the book tonight, or even if you refuse to buy the book tonight, if you just look at the book as somebody else is buying it, you will see it's, it's a very attractive book. 
And, and so it's, one, it's for, for younger people, uh, and, and two, it also incorporates the words of some young people, uh, young people who, who themselves uh, played a role in history. And when you think about it, uh, how many times have you read, when you've read history of the United States, how many times have you read about the role of young people uh, in history? And yet they've played a very important role. And uh, now I remember you know, coming across when I was reading about and writing about the Colorado coal strike of 1913-14, writing about Mother Jones, the 80-year-old uh, organizer for the United Mine Workers. And I remember reading that Mother Jones had led a kind of uh, march of children children who'd worked in the mines, and she led a march of children through the countryside to the home of the President of the United States on Long Island, to Theodore Roosevelt. And, these, and it was a march against child labor. And these kids were carrying signs saying, oh, we want time to play. One of the documents you'll hear tonight uh, has to do with child labor. And one of the documents you hear tonight, you'll, you'll hear from uh, a young person, uh, younger than we've ever had in one of our readings. Uh, and uh, so this is, something, this is something new. But young people have played this remarkable role in the movements of our time. And you will also hear tonight uh, the, uh, the reminiscence of a young woman uh, in uh, Montgomery, Alabama, who refused to leave her front seat on the bus the year before Rosa Parks refused to do so and was arrested. And history is full of the, of, of the uh, participation of young people in important social movements. I'll have to tell you one more, <laughs> which I just thought of. And, uh, and that was because, you know, I was teaching in the South and during the Civil Rights Movement, and, and this sort of stands out in my mind. I, I was in Albany, Georgia, with a mass demonstration of black people in Albany, Georgia. And, and, uh, and they were arrested in, in large numbers. That, you know, like at one point, one-third of the entire black population of Albany, Georgia was in prison. And so uh, there was a scene of this long line of, of African-Americans in Albany, Georgia, long line standing before the desk of the chief of police who was booking them and taking down their names, you know. And so then he, he looks for the next person in line, and he can't see the next person in line because the next person in line is below the level of the desk. <laughs> and so a little boy and chief of police is a little taken aback, but he goes through his routine. He says, well, what's your name, boy? And the boy says, freedom. Uh, well, uh, if any of you saw the, the photos of the demonstrations in the South and the Civil Rights Movement, you will always see in those demonstrations kids, kids uh, participating. So, yeah, we have to recognize the role of young people. You know that all, all that we do in, in 
writing these books and presenting uh, these uh, voices on stage, uh, all of it, however far back it goes in our history, all of it is aimed towards the present. We, we don't believe in history for its own sake. We believe that history uh, has to be something that deals with and helps us understand and helps us act upon what is going around us, the wars that are taking place, the concentration of wealth at the time, at the top, the uh, prejudice against uh, immigrants, the, yeah, the, the lack of health care for people, the, the starvation and sickness around the world. We want, we want our history Whatever period it deals with and whatever the words are, we want them to be aimed at, at us. And we want them to provoke us and stimulate us and inspire us to participate in the social struggles of our time. Uh, that, that's our aim. And so... And, and so tonight we have a a wonderful group of people who have uh, volunteered to come and read for us, uh, and I'm going to uh, introduce them to you as they come out. Uh, Brian Jones. <laughs> Stacy Ann Chin. Avery Brooks. Tim Robbins. Amber Tamblin. Shantina Vernon. Evan Orlick Jetter. And Anthony Arnov, who's going to join me in introducing the various readings. One of the great figures of early Native resistance to the colonization of Native American lands uh, was that of Tecumseh, the Shawnee leader, who in the winter of 1811-1812 spoke to other tribes to try to rally them to unite in opposition to westward expansion. Brothers, we all belong to one family. We are all children of the Great Spirit. We walk in the same path, slake our thirst at the same spring. Brothers, we are friends. We must assist each other to bear our burdens. The blood of many of our fathers and brothers has run like water on the ground to satisfy the avarice of the white man. We ourselves are threatened with a great evil Nothing will pacify them but the destruction of all the red men. Brothers, 
When the white men first set foot on our grounds, they were hungry. They had no place on which to spread their blankets or to kindle their fires. They were feeble. They could do nothing for themselves. Our fathers commiserated their distress and shared freely with them whatever the great spirit had given his red children. They gave them food when hungry, medicine when sick, spread skins for them to sleep on, and gave them grounds that they might hunt and raise corn. Brothers, the white people are like poisonous serpents. When chilled, they are feeble and harmless, but invigorate them with warmth, and they sting their benefactors to death. The white people came among us feeble, and now we have made them strong. They wish to kill us or drive us back as they would wolves and panthers. Brothers, the white men are not friends to the Indians. At first, they only asked for land sufficient for a wigwam. Now, nothing will satisfy them but the whole of our hunting grounds, from the rising to the setting sun. Brothers, who are the white people that we should fear them? They cannot run fast and are good marks to shoot at. They are only men. Our fathers have killed many of them. We will stain the earth red with blood. Brothers, we must be united. We must smoke the same pipe. We must fight each other's battles. And more than all, we must love the great spirit. He is for us. He will destroy our enemies and make all his red children happy. Uh, in the year 1848, a group of women assembled at the home of Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Uh, they were very conscious of the fact that uh, a number of them uh, had not been allowed to sit in uh, the same room with white men uh, and at a uh, meeting in London, at an anti-slavery meeting in London. And uh, so they assembled at Seneca Falls and they were conscious of the fact that they had been left out, women left out of the Declaration of Independence. And so they decided to draw up a women's Declaration of Right, and uh, you will hear the results. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men and women are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The history of mankind is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations on the part of man towards woman. 
having in direct object the establishment of an absolute tyranny over her. To prove this, let facts be submitted to a candid world. He has never permitted her to exercise her inalienable right to the elective franchise. He has compelled her to submit to laws in the formation of which she had no voice. He has made her, if married in the eye of the law, civilly dead. He has taken from her all right in property, even to the wages she earns. He has monopolized nearly all the profitable employments. From those she is permitted to follow, she, rece she receives but a scanty remuneration. He closes against her all the avenues to wealth and distinction, which he considers most honorable to himself. As a teacher of theology, medicine or law, she is not known. He has denied her the facilities for obtaining a thorough education, all colleges being closed against her. He has endeavored in every way that he could to destroy her confidence in her own powers, to lessen her self-respect, and to make her willing to lead a dependent and abject life. Now, in view of this entire disfranchisement of one half the people of this country, their social and religious degradation, in view of the unjust laws above mentioned, and because women do feel themselves aggrieved, oppressed, and fraudulently deprived of their most sacred rights, we insist that they have immediate admission to all the rights and privileges which belong to them as citizens of the United States. In entering upon the great work before us, we anticipate no small amount of misconception, misrepresentation, and ridicule, but we shall use every instrumentality within our power to affect our object July 4th is held up as a day to celebrate the struggle for freedom and independence. But the great abolitionist leader, Frederick Douglass, himself a former slave and an editor of the newspaper, The North Star, an abolitionist newspaper, dared to challenge the veneration of this holiday in a speech that he gave in July of 1852 to the Rochester Ladies Anti-Slavery Society. Mr. President, Friends and fellow citizens, he who could address this audience without a quailing sensation has stronger nerves than I have. I do not remember ever to have appeared as a speaker before any assembly more shrinkingly nor with greater distrust of my ability than I do this day. A feeling has crept over me quite unfavorable to the exercise of my limited powers of speech. Fellow citizens, pardon me. Allow me to ask, why am I called upon to speak here today? What have I or those I represent to do with your national independence? 
are the great principles of political freedom and of natural justice embodied in that Declaration of Independence extended to us? And am I, therefore, called upon to bring our humble offering to the national altar and to confess the benefits and express devout gratitude for the blessings resulting from your independence to us? Would to God, both for your sakes and ours, that an affirmative answer could be truthfully returned to these questions, then my task would be light, my burden easy and delightful. But such is not the case. I see it with a sad sense of the disparity between us. I am not included within the pale of this glorious anniversary. Your high independence only reveals the immeasurable distance between us. The blessings in which you this day rejoice are not enjoyed in common. The rich inheritance of justice, liberty, prosperity, and independence bequeathed by your fathers is shared by you, not me. The sunlight that brought light and healing to you has brought stripes and death to me. This 4th of July is yours, not mine. At a time like this, scorching irony, not convincing argument is needed. Oh, had I the ability and could reach the nation's ear, I would today pour out a fiery stream of biting ridicule, blasting reproach, withering sarcasm and stern rebuke. For it is not light that is needed, but fire. It is not a gentle shower, but thunder. We need the storm, the whirlwind, and the earthquake. The feeling of the nation must be quickened. The conscience of the nation must be roused. The propriety of the nation must be startled. The hypocrisy of the nation must be exposed. And its crimes against God and man must be proclaimed and denounced. What to the American slave is your 4th of July? I answer, a day that reveals to him more than all other days in the year the gross injustice and cruelty to which he is the constant victim. To him, your celebration is a sham, your boasted liberty an unholy license, your national greatness swelling vanity, your sounds of rejoicing are empty and heartless, your denunciation of tyrants brass-fronted impudence, your shouts of liberty and equality hollow mockery, your prayers and hymns, your sermons and thanksgivings with all your religious parade and solemnity are to him mere bombast, fraud, deception, impiety, and hypocrisy, a thin veil to cover up crimes which would disgrace a nation of savages. There is not a nation on the earth guilty of practices more shocking and bloody than are the people of the United States at this very hour. Go where you may, search where you will, roam through all the monarchies and despotisms of the old world. 
travel through South America, search out every abuse, and when you have found the last, lay your facts by the side of the everyday practices of this nation, and you will say with me that for revolting barbarity and shameless hypocrisy, America reigns without rival. The Reverend Logan was an escaped slave who now uh, was in Syracuse, New York, and was very much a leader of the Underground Railroad. At a certain point, he received a letter from his former master, Miss, Miss Sarah Logan, asking him to return to slavery. <laughs> and this is his response. Mrs. Sarah Logue, yours of the 20th of February is duly received, and I thank you for it. It is a long time since I heard from my poor old mother, and I'm glad to know that she is yet alive. I wish you had said more about her. You sold my brother and sister and 12 acres of land, you say, because I ran away. Now you have the unutterable meanness to ask me to return and be your miserable chattel, or in lieu thereof, send you $1,000 to enable you to redeem the land, but not redeem my poor brothers and sisters. If I were to send you money, it would be to get my brother and sister, not that you should get land. You say you are a cripple. Doubtless you say it to stir my pity, for you knew I was susceptible in that direction. I do pity you from the bottom of my heart. Nevertheless, I am indignant beyond the power of words to express that you should be so sunken and cruel as to tear the hearts I love so all in pieces that you should be willing to impale and crucify us all out of compassion for your poor foot or leg. <laughs> Wretched woman! <laughs> be it known to you that I value my freedom to say nothing of my mother, brothers, and sisters more than your whole body. <laughs> Indeed, more than my own life more than all the lives of all the slaveholders and tyrants under heaven. You say you have offers to buy me and that you shall sell me if I do not send you $1,000. And in the same breath and almost in the same sentence, you say, you know, we raised you as, as we did our own children. <laughs> Woman! Did you raise your own children for the market? Did you raise them for the whipping post? Did you raise them to be driven off, bound in chains? Where are my poor bleeding brothers and sisters? Can you tell? 
Who was it that sent them off into sugar and cotton fields to be kicked and cuffed and whipped and to groan and die where no kin can hear their groans or attend and sympathize at their dying bed or follow in funeral? Wretched woman! Do you not say you did it? Then I reply, your husband did, and you approve the deed. And the very letter you sent me shows that your heart approves it all. Shame on you. You say I'm a thief because I took the old mare along with me. <laughs> Have you got to learn that I had a better right to the old mare than Master Logue had to me? Is it a greater sin for me to steal his horse than it was for him to rob my mother's cradle and steal me? If he and you infer that I forfeit all my rights to you, shall I not infer that you forfeit all your rights to me? Have you got to learn that human rights are mutual and reciprocal? And if you take my liberty in life, you forfeit your own liberty in life. Before God in high heaven, is there one law for man which is not a law for every other man? Did you think to terrify me by presenting the alternative to give my money to you or, or give my body to slavery. Then let me say to you that I meet the proposition with unutterable scorn and contempt. The proposition is an outrage and an insult. I will not budge one hair's breath. I will not breathe a shorter breath, even to save me from your persecutions. I stand among free people who sympathize with my rights and the rights of mankind. And if your emissaries come here to re-enslave me and escape the unshrinking vigor of my own right arm, I trust my strong and brave friends will be my rescuers and my avengers. When New England capitalists started building textile mills in Massachusetts and other states in New England, they recruited young women uh, to be part of the labor force, thinking that they would be docile and easily managed. Instead, the women formed reading circles and organized some of the earliest labor struggles in American history. Here, Harriet Hanson Robinson, who was only 10 years old when she started working in the mills, recalls one of the first strikes of the textile women. At the time the Lowell cotton mills were started, the factory girl was the lowest among women. In England and in France, particularly great injustices had been done to her real character. She was represented as subjected to influences that could not fail to destroy her purity and self-respect. In the eyes of her overseer, she was but a brute, a slave to be beaten, pinched, and pushed out. One of the first strikes of the cotton factory operatives that ever took place in this country was that in Lowell in October 1836. When it was announced that wages were to be cut down, great indignation was felt, and it was decided to strike en masse. This was done. The mills were shut down, and the girls went in procession from their several corporations to the grove on Chapel Hill and listened to incendiary speeches from every labor reformers. One of the girls stood on a stump 
on a pump and gave vent to the feelings of her companions in a neat speech, declaring that, that it was their duty to resist all attempts at cutting down the wages. This was the first time a woman had spoken in public in Lao, and the event caused surprise and consternation amongst her audience. Cutting down the wages was not their only grievance, nor the only cause of this strike. Hitherto, the corporations had paid 25 cents a week towards the board of each operative, and now it was their purpose to have the girls pay the sum. And this, in addition to the cut in wages, would make a difference of at least $1 a week. It was estimated that as many as 12 or 1,500 girls turned out and walked in procession through the streets. My own recollection of this first strike is very, very vivid. I worked in a lower room where I had heard the proposed strike fully, if not vehemently discussed. I had been an ardent listener to what was said against this attempt at oppression on the part of the corporation, and naturally, I took the side with the strikers. When the day came on which the girls were to turn out, those in the upper room started first, and so many of them left that our mill was at once shut down. Then when the girls in my room stood irre irresolute, uncertain what to do, asking each other, would you or shall we turn out? And not one of them having the courage to lead off, I, who begun to think they would not go out, after all their talk became impatient and started on going ahead, saying with childish bravado, I don't care what you do, I am going to turn out, whether anyone else does or not. And I marched out, and I was followed by the others. As I looked back at the long line that followed me, I was more proud than I have ever been at any success I may have achieved. Uh -huh. When we hear today about the free market, the good days of the free market, uh, remember, those were the days when kids worked in the mines and mills and factories uh, at the age of 8 and 10, 12 and 14 and 16 hours a day. Uh, and uh, at some point in the year 1913, the National Child Labor Committee composed a declaration of dependence by and for children. Whereas we children of America are declared to have been born free and equal. And whereas we are yet in bondage in this land of the free, are forced to toil the long day or the long night, with no control over the conditions of labor as to health or safety or hours or wages, and with no right to the rewards of our service, therefore be it resolved that childhood is endowed with certain inherent and inalienable rights, among which are freedom from toil for daily bread, the right to play and to dream, the right to the normal sleep of the night season, the right to an education 
that we may have a quality of opportunity for developing all that there is in us of mind and heart, resolved that we demand the restoration of our rights by the abolition of child labor in America. Sylvia Woods was a pioneer, trade unionist, and uh, anti-racist organizer, but she's someone we never hear about in our school textbooks. She recalled, as a 10-year-old growing up in Louisiana, the racism that she spoke out against in the early part of the 20th century. When I was maybe 10 years old, I changed schools. On the way to school, I had to go through a park that was for white people only. We could walk through the park, but we couldn't stop at all, just pass through it. There were swings in this park, and I, I so much wanted sometimes just to stop and swing a little while, but we couldn't because we were black. I would walk through this park to my school, to my school, where there weren't any swings. So every morning, all the kids would line up according to classrooms, and we would have prayers and sing the Star Spangled Banner, and then we would march to our respective groups after this business. Well, I decided I wasn't going to sing the Star Spangled Banner. I just stood there every morning, and I didn't sing it. Well, one morning, one of the teachers noticed that I wasn't doing it. So she very quietly called me over and asked, why? didn't I sing the Star Spangled Banner? I said, I just didn't feel like singing it. <laughs> so she said, well, then you have to go to the principal's office and explain that to him. All of the children in the school take part, and you've got to do it too. Okay. I went into the principal. He asked me why I wasn't singing the Star Spangled Banner. So finally I said, because it says, the land of the free and the home of the brave. And this is not the land of the free. I don't know who's brave, but I'm not going to sing it anymore. <laughs> then he said, well, why you've been singing it all the time, haven't you? How come you would stop now? And I told him about coming through the park, and if I could not swing in those swings in the park, and I couldn't sit in the park, and I could only walk through Shakespeare Park, then it couldn't be the land of the free. Who's free? He didn't say anything. Then he said, well, you could pledge allegiance to your flag. I said, it's not my flag. The flag is with freedom. If the land is free, and the flag is mine, then how come I can't do like the white kids do? Um, in 1917, after Woodrow Wilson had been elected president on a pledge that he would not go to war, uh, the United States declared 
war and enter the sort of slaughterhouse going on in Europe. Socialists oppose this. The socialist leader, Eugene Debs, in uh, June of 1918, made a speech in Canton, Ohio, uh, about the war. He was uh, sent to prison uh, for 10 years, uh, approved by a unanimous Supreme Court. This is the speech that led to his imprisonment. Sam Johnson declared that patriotism is the last refuge of the scoundrel. He must have had the Wall Street gentry in mind, <laughs> or at least their prototypes, for in every age, it has been the tyrant, the oppressor, and the exploiter who has wrapped himself in the cloak of patriotism or religion or both to deceive and overawe the people. Every solitary one of these aristocratic conspirators and would-be murderers claims to be an arch-patriot. Every one of them insists that the war is being waged to make the world safe for democracy. <laughs> what humbug. <laughs> what rot. What false pretense. Wars throughout history have been waged for conquest and plunder. In the Middle Ages, where the feudal lords concluded to enlarge their domains, to increase their power, their prestige, and their wealth, they declared war upon one another. But they themselves did not go to war any more than the modern feudal lords, the barons of Wall Street, go to war. <laughs> the feudal barons of the Middle Ages, the economic predecessors of the capitalists of our day, declared all wars, and their miserable serfs fought all the battles. The poor, ignorant serfs had been taught to revere their masters, to believe that when their masters declared war upon one another, it was their patriotic duty to fall upon one another and to cut one another's throats for the profit and the glory of the lords and barons who held them in contempt. And that is war in a nutshell. The master class has always declared the wars. The subject class has always fought the battles. The master class had everything to gain and nothing to lose, while the subject class has had nothing to gain and everything to lose, especially their lives. They have always taught you and trained you to believe it to be your patriotic duty to go to war and to have yourself slaughtered at their command. But in all the history of the world, the people have never had a voice in declaring war. And strange as it certainly appears, no war by any nation in any age has ever been declared by the people. <laughs> <laughs>
the working class who fight all the battles, the working class who make the supreme sacrifices, the working class who freely shed their blood and furnish the corpses, have never yet had a voice in either declaring war or making peace. It is the ruling class that invariably does both. They alone declare war and they alone make peace. Yours not to reason why, yours just to do or die. That is their motto and we object on the part of the awakening workers of this nation. If war is right, let it be declared by the people. In 1937, a Bronx school teacher named Abel Mirapol saw a photograph of a lynching of two black teenagers in Marion, Indiana that had taken place seven years earlier. He was moved to write a poem called Strange Fruit, which he published in two publications, the New, the New Masses and The New York Teacher, two publications associated with the Communist Party of which he was a member. Later in his life, he brought the poem to the blues singer Billie Holiday. And Billie Holiday tried to release the song on her own on, through, her, uh, through her record label, but her label wouldn't release it. So she had to release it through a specialty label. And she published it and sang it under the title Strange Fruit. Southern tree. Bear a strange fruit Blood on the leaves And blood at the root Black bodies The southern breeze, strange fruit hanging from the poplar trees, pastoral scenes of the gallant south, the bright bulging eyes and the twisted mouth. Scent of magnolia, sweet and fresh. Then the sudden smell of burning flesh. Here is a fruit for the crows to pluck. For the rain to gather, for the wind to suck, for the sun to rot, for the tree 
so strange and bitter Nine months before Rosa Parks was arrested in that famous incident which sparked the civil rights movement, a 15-year-old Claudette Colbert refused to give up her seat and was arrested, and she was jeered at and called whore and all sorts of names and charged with assaulting a police officer. Uh, this is her recollection of what happened. On March 2nd, 1955, I got on the bus in front of Dexter Avenue Church. I went to the middle. No white people were on the bus at that time. It was mostly children. I wasn't thinking about anything in particular. I had just finished eating a candy bar. Then the bus began to fill up. White people got on and began to stare at me. The bus motorman asked me to get up. We were getting into the square where all the buses take their routes in either direction. A colored lady got on, and she was pregnant. I was sitting next to the window. The seat next to me was the only seat unoccupied. She didn't realize what was going on. She didn't know that the bus driver had asked me to get up. She just saw the empty seat and sat next to me. A white lady was sitting across the aisle from me, and it was against the law for you to sit in the same aisle with a white person. The bus driver looked back through the rearview mirror and again told me to get up. I didn't. I knew he was talking to me. He said, hey, get up. I didn't say anything. When I didn't get up, he didn't move the bus. He said before he'd drive on, I'd have to get up. People were saying, why don't you get up? Why don't you get up? One girl said, she knows she has to get up. Then another girl said, she doesn't have to. Only one thing you have to do is stay black and die. <laughs> the white people were complaining. The bus driver stopped the bus and said, this can't go on. Then he got up and said, I'm going to call the cops. First, a traffic patrolman came on the bus and he asked, are any of you gentlemen enough to get up and give this pregnant lady your seat? There were two black men on the back of the bus who were sanitation workers. They got up and the pregnant lady went and sat in the back. That left me sitting by the window. I remained there, and the traffic patrolman said, aren't you going to get up? I said, no, I do not have to get up. I paid my fare, so I do not have to get up. It's my constitutional right to sit here just as much as that lady. It's my constitutional right. Martin Luther King Jr.'s eloquence as the leader of the black freedom struggle was unparalleled. He's celebrated and taught in our schools, but we rarely hear or read this speech, which he gave 
1967 at a convention of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. Over the last 10 years, the Negro decided to straighten his back up, realizing that a man cannot ride your back unless it is bent. We made an indifferent and unconcerned nation rise from lethargy and subpoenaed its conscience to appear before the judgment seat of morality and the whole question of civil rights. We gained manhood in a nation that had always called us boy. With all the struggle and all the achievements, we must face the fact, however, that the Negro still lives in the basement of the great society. He is still at the bottom, despite the few who have penetrated to slightly higher levels. Even where the door has been forced partially open, mobility for the Negro is still sharply restricted. There is often no bottom at which to start, and when there is, there's almost no room at the top. In consequence, Negroes are still impoverished aliens in an affluent society. They are too poor even to rise with the society, too impoverished by the ages to be able to ascend by using their own resources. And the Negro did not do this to himself. It was done to him. For more than half of his American history, he was enslaved. Yet, he built the spanning bridges and the grand mansions, the sturdy docks and stout factories of the South. His unpaid labor made cotton king and established America as a significant nation in international commerce. Even after his release from chattel slavery, the nation grew over him, submerging him. It became the richest, most powerful society in the history of the man, in the history of man, but it left the Negro far behind. And so we still have a long, long way to go before we reach the promised land of freedom. We must honestly face the fact that the movement must address itself to the question of restructuring the whole of American society. There are 40 million poor people here. And one day we must ask the question, why are there 40 million poor people in America? And when you begin to ask that question, you are raising a question about the economic system, about a broader distribution of wealth. When you ask that question, you begin to question the capitalistic economy. And I'm simply saying that more and more we've got to begin to ask questions about the whole society. We are called upon to help the discouraged beggars in life's marketplace. But one day we must come to see that an edifice which produces beggars needs restructuring. It means that questions must be raised. And you see, my friends, when you deal with this, you begin to ask the question, who owns the, who owns the oil? You begin to ask the question, who owns the iron ore? You begin to ask the question, why is it that people have to pay water bills in a world that's two-thirds water? <laughs> These are questions that must be said. Now, when I say questioning the whole society, it means ultimately coming to see the problems of racism, 
the problem of economic exploitation and the problem of war are all tied together. These are the triple evils that are interrelated. And if you'll let me be a preacher just a little bit, one day, one night, a juror came to Jesus and he wanted to know what he could do to be saved. Jesus didn't get bogged down on the kind of isolated approach of what you shouldn't do. Jesus didn't say, now, Nicodemus, you must stop lying. He didn't say, Nicodemus, now you must not commit adultery. He didn't say, now, Nicodemus, you must stop cheating if you're doing that. He didn't say, Nicodemus, you must stop drinking liquor if you're doing that excessively. He said something altogether different because Jesus realized something basic, that if a man will lie, he will steal. And if a man will steal, he will kill. So instead of getting bogged down on one thing, Jesus looked at him and said, Nicodemus, you must be born again. In other words, your whole structure must be changed. A nation that will keep people in slavery for 244 years will thingify them, make them things, and therefore they will exploit them and poor people generally economically. And a nation that will exploit economically will have to have foreign investments and everything else, and it will have to use its military might to protect them. All of these problems are tied together. What I'm saying today is that we must go from this convention and say, America, you must be born again. In the summer of 1969, a dramatic event took place in Greenwich Village, New York, when police stormed a bar for gay people uh, on Christopher Street. And this time, the gay people fought back. This was called the Stonewall Rebellion, and it was a high moment in the resistance, in the resistance of the gay movement. The danger was very real. By now, the crowd had swelled to a mob. People were picking up and throwing whatever loose objects came to hand, bottles, cans, bricks from a nearby construction site, when sailing into the plate glass window that stretched across the front of the Stonewall Bar. Well, stunned by the crowd's unexpected fury, the police retreated inside the bar. <laughs> They were accustomed to two or three cops being able to handle any number of cowering gays. But here, the crowd wasn't cowering. With the cops holed up inside, the crowd was now in control of the street. Someone yelled, it's the revolution! <laughs> the police sent out a call to the tactical police force. And relief was now coming around the corner. They were a highly trained crack riot control unit that had been set up to respond to the protests against the Vietnam War. Wearing helmets with visors, carrying billy clubs and tear gas, its two dozen members all seemed massively proportioned. They were a formidable sight as linked arm in arm they came up Christopher Street in a wedge formation. 
and in their path, the rioters retreated, but did not break and run. When the tactical patrol force realized that a crowd had simply reformed to their rear, <laughs> they flailed out at anyone who came within striking distance, but the pattern repeated itself several times. <laughs> they would disperse the mob only to have it reform behind them. <laughs> Yelling taunts, tossing bottles and bricks, setting fires in trash cans. At one point, when the police whirled around a reverse direction, they found themselves face to face with their worst nightmare, a chorus line of mocking queens. <laughs> their arms clasped around each other, kicking their heels in the air, Rockettes style, <laughs> and singing at the top of their voices, we are the Stonewall Girls. We wear our hair in curls. We wear no underwear. We show our pubic hair. We wear our dungarees above our Nelly knees. It was. It was a deliciously contemptuous counterpoint to the cop's brute force, a tactic that transformed an otherwise traditionally macho eye-for-an-eye -eye combat and provided at least a glimpse of a different kind of consciousness. Before the police finally succeeded in clearing the streets, for that evening only, it would turn out, a considerable amount of blood had been shed. At 3.35 a.m., an uneasy calm settled over the area. It was not to last. The pace of change in the struggle for equal rights for gay and lesbian families has quickened markedly in the last few months. Last month, Iowa and Vermont legalized same-sex marriage, and last week... <laughs> last week, Maine became the fifth state to allow gay couples to wed. Similar legislation <laughs> is advancing in New Hampshire, here in New York and in Washington, D.C. In Vermont, state legislators cited as especially persuasive the moving testimony of Evan Orlick Jetter, a 12-year-old middle school student who spoke to a joint committee in a public hearing on March 18, just a few weeks before the legislature's historic vote. Tonight, Evan reads her own testimony.
My name is Evan Orlick Jetter. I'm 12 years old and I live in Thetford Center, Vermont. I have a wonderful family. I live with my little brother, my grandma, and two moms who are with me all the time and support me in whatever I do. I love them very much, and I wish that having to stand up here right now in front of this committee wasn't an issue anymore. We should be past this. I work really hard in school, I have good friends, and I am really happy with two loving parents. I have been studying the civil rights movement in school, and I have learned all about the countless acts of bravery that blacks perform to get their rights. But we still haven't reached the promised land that Martin Luther King wanted us to reach. Because although black boys and white boys and black girls and white girls can play together now, we still don't accept that two people of the same gender can be together, married, with kids of their own. On the day of Barack Obama's election, everyone was celebrating, and I was too, except that on that same wonderful night, Proposition 8 was passed in California that took away the rights of gays and lesbians in California to marry. We took a step back into the past. We need to reach the promised land. Vermont's freedom to marry can help us get back on track. Feeling accepted in a society where gay and lesbian people aren't represented in daily life, like on television, in the media, is a real problem. There aren't any examples of a family like mine. If my parents could just have the right to get married, this would make such a difference. It hurts me sometimes when I feel invisible because few people understand my feelings about my family and few people want to ask about families with two moms or two dads. It's time to ask. It's time to understand. And it's time to accept and honor families like mine. Passing this law will make it easier for me to talk about my family openly and the subject won't have to stay behind closed doors. This would mean so much to me, my brother, and many others. Thank you for your time and your consideration. Final reading of the evening, uh, a poem by that great poet, novelist, Marge Piercy. What can they do to you? Whatever they want. They can set you up, they can bust you, they can break your fingers, they can burn your brain with electricity, blur you with drugs till you can't walk, can't remember. They can take your child, 
Wall up your lover. They can do anything you can't blame them from doing. How can you stop them? Alone you can fight. You can refuse. You can take what revenge you can. But they roll over you. But two people fighting, back to back, can cut through a mob. A snake dancing file can break a cordon. An army can meet an army. Two people can keep each other sane, can give support, conviction, love, massage, hope, sex. Three people are a delegation, a committee, a wedge. With four, you can play bridge and start an organization. <laughs> with six, you can rent a whole house, eat pie for dinner with no seconds, and hold a fundraising party. A dozen can make a demonstration. A hundred fill a hall. A thousand have solidarity and your own newsletter. 10,000 power and your own paper. A hundred thousand your own media. 10 million, your own country. It goes one at a time. It starts when you care to act. It starts when you do it again after they said no. It starts when you say we and you know who you mean. And each day you mean one more. Thank you all for coming, and thanks for our artists and readers uh, tonight. Uh, Brian Jones. <laughs> Stacy Ann Chen. Avery Brooks. Tim Robbins, Amber Tamblin, Shantina Vernon, Evan Orlick Jetter. Anthony Arnold. Thanks for listening. 92i Talks is supported by a generous endowment established by Daphne Reconati Kaplan and Thomas S. Kaplan. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and find more great conversations at 92iondemand.org.